0: That's heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. And make sure you donate before March 31st. Thank you.
1: You're listening to Heritage Radio Network. HRN is food radio supported by you. Learn more at heritageradionetwork.org. This is Capri Cafaro, host of Each Your Heartland Out. This hour of the show takes us to Kansas, where we will meet two groups of guests who capture the cultural complexity of the sunflower state. The leaders of Heartland Farm share the work they do to promote holistic health and sustainable farming practices. And meet two women behind Fiesta Topeka. They discuss the way this decades-old event is preserving and promoting the town's Mexican-American community. Well, I want to take this time to welcome Marisol and Gina to the program. Welcome to you both. Excited to have you. Thank you. Thank Thank you you for inviting us. Absolutely. Uh, So, you know, I I will start with you, Marisol. Um, I I think it's important for our listeners to kind of get an understanding of Topeka and the Mexican-American community there. How did the Mexican immigrant community come to be settled uh, there in Topeka, Kansas?
2: Um, of course, and I might ask Gina for some help, as she is so wise. From, from my understanding, I'm not a native to Topeka. However, I did grow up here in Topeka. And um, for my connection at the funeral home with working here at the funeral home, I've Came to the understanding that a lot of um, immigrants started working on the railroad, BNSF, mm-hmm. which is located in the Oakland neighborhood. So you know, as those um, as those people started working at BNSF, they started getting transferred, you know, along the railroad to different um, different places on the railroad, and one of them happens to be right here in Topeka, Kansas, in our Oakland community, um, which is at the heart of the Fiesta.
3: Would you mm-hmm. would you add anything to that, Gina? Well, yes, um, there were quite a few families that came from Mexico and that worked on the railroad. And a lot of them, just the, you know, the the men came. And then later, as they settled, then they brought the rest of their families. But Mm -hmm. yes, they came. And as it started, they were with, it wasn't the Burlington Northern, it was Santa Fe that brought them.
2: Wow! Yeah,
3: it was Santa Fe, and then they later transitioned into the Burlington Northern, and that's where we get Burlington Northern Santa Fe. But yeah, so they they came and located right there in the heart of Oakland, and then that's where we did um, started our Our Lady of Guadalupe Church, and that's where we started our little fiesta, our Mexican fiesta there. <clears throat> so that's where that all began.
1: Wow. I mean, it it sounds like a a pretty traditional kind of turn of the 20th century immigrant story where, you know, individuals, particularly men, as you mentioned, you know, come for some kind of economic opportunity, whether it's the railroad or the steel mills, you know, or whatever it might be. um, And and they Settle there, and then they, they, you know, they bring their family, and other people come, recognizing that it, there's a, you know, a, an uh, opportunity in that region, and uh, it changes the, the, you know, the face of 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 a region. And I think that's what's what's one of the things that is so fascinating to me about food. And I say this over and over and over again on the show as a storyteller is because you know, um, food is a way that cultures communicate in a, you know, in a, in a very unique manner. And, um, it's, sure. it's a way that people come together and they learn about one another. And so, you know, as, uh, as a nation of immigrants and, you know, I, I reference you know, my, my community in Northeastern Ohio, a lot of Eastern Europeans, Southern Europeans came for the steel mills for the coal mines. And it sounds like, you know, in the case of Topeka, uh, you know, a, a number of Mexican immigrants settled there for, for similar reasons. Uh, and, and this fest, the, this festival Fiesta Topeka, um, started, I understand, is it 90 years ago? Is that right? At least in some manner?
2: Yes. We just celebrated our 90th anniversary. Yes, back in
3: July. Yes, we did.
2: So so
1: how has, um, how has the Fiesta changed over the years? What did it maybe, if you know, um, and either one of you can answer this question, uh, uh, or both of you, um, how, if we were to go back 90 years, um, what would the fiesta experience have been? Have been like that?
3: Well, <clears throat> just what from what I've been told by my mother and my grandmother, um, who have both been participants of the of our fiesta back then, it was a fiesta mexicana, and mm-hmm. my mom, my grandmother, used to make tostada shells at her home, and the different. Um, different ladies would make different um, like different shells or one lady would make all the meat, one lady would peel all the potatoes, one lady would shred the lettuce, um, just different families would do different things and then they'd all come to the church and put it together there. And then they would sell their food there to people that would come. And so that's how it started. And they would start then do little games for the kids. They would take like little, um, they would save their eggshells and they would stuff them with shredded paper. And then they would crack them on each other's head. And then they confetti <laughs> that would then just fly all over. And it was a big thing. Everybody loved having that, you know. And then that, the pinata came. We, they always had piñatas where you break them open and the candy would fly all over and how it, fun, it would, you know, would enjoy getting candy. So I mean, fam- who doesn't? <laughs> the families would sit around and eat and the kids would be eating candy and breaking those little um, eggshells on each other's head. And it was just a festival like that, that they just did every year to raise money for their, for their church. Mm-hmm. And later became that they opened up a school to help teach the kids to learn English. And, and it was a Catholic church. And so and, and then they just it just progressed. So every year they kept growing and growing. And then my mom, she eventually when I remember when I went to the school to Our Lady of Guadalupe, she was a food share person. No kidding. Yes, yeah, she did the she food chaired it for a year or so, and she ran the kitchen and and um, asked a, but, uh, other women and and families to come in and help her prepare all the food, and they would come in early in the morning mm-hmm. and start cooking beans and and we have a little elderly center, Lulac Center, where a lot of the older Mexican ladies would be going. And they'd all come over and dice all the onions and peel the potatoes and just sit around and mm-hmm. and visit and wow. gossip, of course, <laughs> you know. <laughs> and the men would be over there, you know, mashing the beans mm-hmm. and and cooking tamales and making and spreading the masa and stuff. So it was really a family thing. Mm -hmm. It's a community affair for sure. Yes. And now as Gina
2: was talking about, her mom used to be um, the Fiesta food captain. Gina now continues to follow in her legacy and she is the Fiesta food captain. And this past 90th year, she worked so hard. This was her first year. She gave everything she could and we thankfully had a very successful Fiesta Topeka.
1: I mean, it sounds, uh, you know, just really inspiring and obviously very delicious. And I love the fact that, you know, there's, this is, a, you know, a multi generational and intergenerational experience for so many. You know, how important do you think it is, um, you know, to continue on uh, the fiesta, you know, from generation to generation, year to year, um, you know, in an effort to, you know, Continue to preserve and celebrate the Mexican and Mexican Mexican American heritage there in Topeka.
3: Well, I think personally, I feel and I I have the utmost respect and I look forward to it because, for one, um, my dad went to Our Lady of Guadalupe um, and graduated. I went to Our Lady of Guadalupe and graduated. My Two oldest kids went to Our Lady of Guadalupe school, and now my grandchildren are going to Our Lady oh, of Guadalupe. Oh, that's wonderful. They're going to Holy Family now because it's not Our Lady of Guadalupe, it's Holy Family. Mm-hmm. So they, um, so we've had now, we're in our fourth tradition of, of our family that is going to this, to this school. So, I mean, it has a lot of importance to me. So that's why I do it. And my son is very involved in it in the school and has been a big help to me, you know, through this, through the Fiesta and and getting everything prepared and helping me work. And my children, my other sons have too. They don't have kids yet. So hopefully that they will, as they get children, that they will become and go into our school too.
1: That's just, I mean, I can, I can tell how passionate you are, um, and it's wonderful that your family is carrying on that tradition. Now, Marisol, I know that you, you said you're not a native, but you grew up there in Topeka. Um, you know, how, um, why did you decide that you wanted to get involved? I know you're the publicity chair for the Fiesta, and, and obviously really community-minded. What motivated you to, to become engaged
2: so, um, I, like I said, I'm not a native. However, I did attend Holy Family Catholic School for my middle school years and graduated from there. And my family, um, we are members of Our Lady of Guadalupe Catholic Church. So that's where I have that connection. And growing mm-hmm. up, I started with dancing, um, ballet, Flacotico de Topeka, for the fiesta so I was able to be involved in the fiesta and now as I grow older it's truly an honor to give back to my community and give back to my church and being involved in a different way I think it's so important that we have so many wise people on the fiesta committee that have been there for multiple fiestas have seen things change um, have been part of the change and have added so many great ideas but I'm really advocating for younger people to be involved as well because a lot of the older people on the Fiesta committee They have continued the legacy of their parents, their grandparents, their great-grandparents. And now it's our job to continue that legacy um, and to have, you know, 90 more years, 100 more years of the Fiesta Topeka. Um, And it's also so important to have the Fiesta Topeka in Topeka, Kansas, a place where everybody belongs and a place where, you know, you don't have to necessarily be Hispanic to come to the Fiesta. And everybody knows that people come from all over for our delicious food, um, our amazing culture and to just celebrate with us. So it is definitely um, a landmark spot in Topeka where people say, okay, you know, it's fiesta time. So let's go, let's go get our tamales. Let's go get our tostadas, our tacos, let's dance and just have a great time.
1: Uh, It's it sounds great. And it just it really does remind me of so many other church festivals and, you know, ethnic festivals and fairs, uh, you know, in my region, as well as, you know, talking to folks through, you know, this show like yourself all across the Midwest, uh, you know, and and learning about how, um, you know, small communities, single parishes, Um, have managed to, you know, create these major events that have gone on decade after decade after decade. And as you said, Marisol, you know, people are doesn't matter what your background is. People come because they're, they, you know, they're celebrating together. They're enjoying that food. And, and it's that one time a year where you're waiting around for, you know, whatever your favorite thing is uh, that is on offer every year. And all of those incredible people that are working so hard to make it happen, um, you know, put all that effort into it. And and that's why that food is special too. So, Marcel, I this is a good segue because I wanted to ask about what the festival looks like today. We just talked about kind of You know, its roots and maybe a little bit of its evolution and how invested the community is. But I know that it's obviously changed um, and it's grown as an event, um, both in attendees as well as in the number of days that it goes on. Right.
2: Yes. So it is, I believe it started out, was it a three-day event, Gina, that it started out as? I think yes. so, yes. And now it is a five-day five day long event. event. And even though the main fiesta is just, you know, those five days, it is really a month-long event. Like I said, people anticipate for this. We have uh, special events going on throughout the month. So people July. are like, mm-hmm. okay, fiesta is coming um, this year we had a pickleball tournament. Pickleball is taking over the nation. Um, We also had a golf tournament, tournament, of course. We have a 5k walk run. We have a fiesta parade. We have coronation balls. And throughout the fiesta, leading up to the fiesta, um, this is a really good way we engage our youth in the community, is they have an opportunity to run for fiesta king and queen. Mm -hmm. And what that means is that those families, they have food sales, You know, one family has one week, another family has another week, and so on. So people, again, will come from all over the city just to have that taste of the Fiesta food leading up to Fiesta. And ultimately, whoever raises the most money, they get crowned Fiesta Topeka King and Queen. So that really helps not only our numbers, but it also helps the youth be involved. And, you know, other youth also see that. And they wanna be involved as well. So it's always an exciting time of the year.
1: Oh, I bet, I bet. Um and we I know you referenced, both have referenced it, and, and obviously this um this conversation is, is not gonna be aired kind of in real time, if you will, um, with the um when the fest the fiesta happens. So tell us when actually this occurs during the year. This is obviously to me at least, you know, an evergreen conversation people can learn about the culture there and when this happens, Um, and obviously it lives forever as a podcast. Um, But tell us a little bit about when um, uh, this um, uh, event goes on and how people can learn more.
2: Great, so the event this year the 91st Fiesta is going to be July 16th through the 24th, I'm sorry, 16th through the 20th, my apologies, of 2024. And people can learn more about, you know, just being engaged, following our Facebook page, which is at Fiesta Topeka, our Instagram as well. And of course, um, fiestatopeka.com is how they can learn more and see some information about what other exciting events we have coming up this year.
1: That is that I know that people are going to want to to come out, learn more, uh, come and visit the Fiesta Topeka. Do you, what do you have on the horizon? Uh, anything special planned uh, or any new additions um, as uh, you know, you, you gear up for the 91st uh, Fiesta Topeka? Because I know that, you know, there are always some traditions that are going to stay. But sometimes like you mentioned pickleball, uh, sometimes, you know, you're going to mix it up a little bit.
2: Of course, our pickleball tournament was really successful um, this past year, so we do plan on continuing that, as well as the beanbag toss tournament, we had that as well. It's truly amazing that our local community um, really partners with us and we can collaborate and make so many amazing ideas from, you know, the WIBW news station to Reezer's Foods, who donates so much of our food. It's really a community affair. And we do come together, and at the end of the day, we are all big one family.
1: That's wonderful, Gina. Do you have anything to to add, or um, you know, you have any plans um, leading? The, are you still leading the food next year?
3: Yes, I am. I am still the chairperson for our food this year, and um, I'm just you know we're we're already planning on what we're going to do um, and activities that we're looking at possibly going to set up to do leading up to this. Um, I do have a co-chair this year that will be helping me out, Rose RC, which I'm very excited about. So I have a little help coming on this year. So that's going to be very, very helpful to me. But um, oh my God, we, we just have so many activities like she, like um, Mar- Marisol was saying. You know, we did a dedication of, uh, of the school. We have a wall that we did and we put up a lot of Old pictures of like our great grandparents, our great, great grandparents, just oh, some awesome. old Fiesta photos and stuff. They're, um, lamin- they're lacquered and stuff that they're placed on this wall and all these little shiny stones all over. It is just gorgeous, the, the committee that put it together. It is just beautiful. And coming over the bridge, which Santa Fe is on one side and our, our festival is on the other side. So it it has a good little heritage there of all, everybody who worked at Santa Fe coming over. And then our guests come there and we have our big signs that, you know, say welcome to Fiesta Topeka coming into it. So I I just think it's really exciting. I'm so excited about this year coming up again, the new, you know, I don't know what new activities we're going to do. I know that it's just, we're we're getting in the works of the planning right now. Um, We're just trying to get through the holidays. And before we get into really getting to settling down to work on it, but I'm so excited about it.
2: There's truly something for everybody at the Fiesta Topeka. If you want to dance, you can dance. If you um, prefer looking at an art show, we have a beautiful cultural art show that goes on as well. And it's in air condition because July is one of the hottest months of the year. Um, If you want to run, we have our 5K, our 5K walk, run, a golf tournament. There is just so much for everyone to enjoy.
1: It sounds wonderful, and we're going to have to follow along on social media and online to see what you have planned, what activities you land on, what new menu items you might add. Uh, We'll definitely be keeping an eye out for the 91st Fiesta Topeka. Marisol, Gina, thank you so very much for coming and visiting with Eat Your Heartland Out and sharing Topeka's story with our listeners.
2: Thanks so much for having us. We can't wait to celebrate with you in 2024.
3: Thank you so much for having us. Absolutely. Thank you.
2: After
1: the break, I will welcome my next group of guests. They're also from Kansas, and will discuss how Heartland Farm has taken a holistic approach to serving the needs of their local rural community. That's next. Stick around. Welcome back to Eat Your Heartland Out. I'm sticking with the Kansas theme, but switching gears. I'd like to welcome Sister Jane Bellingee, Teresa Johnson, and Tara Crawford. Sister Jane is the site director, Teresa is the marketing director, and Tara is the farm director at Heartland Farm, a retreat founded 35 years ago by the Dominican Sisters of Peace with an aim to address the challenges of its rural Midwestern community. So, Sister Jane, um, let me start with you. Um, Tell us about the origins of Heartland Farm.
4: Okay. Um, We used 1987 as the uh, kind of founding uh, date for Heartland Farm. Uh, It was begun as a ministry of the Great Bend Dominican Sisters. Uh, And it really was uh, in response to... The farm crisis uh, back in the 80s, uh, which uh, had um, small family farms going under and uh, we are surrounded by a a heavily agricultural community. And so the impact for the people of our area was significant then and continues to be. Uh, Heartland Farm was purchased uh, by the sisters to be a place of uh, holistic uh, living and uh, really uh, an experiment in discovering what uh, what that would look like uh, as a a part of uh, the overall ministry of the sisters to the Central Kansas community. Um, they had founded a a hospital uh, in response and served in schools. Kind of typical sisters uh, ministries, and this was a, a a change in emphasis of saying if if we are going to be in a, embedded in an agricultural community, we need to be a part of that actual work, but mm-hmm. doing it in a, a different way. Um, so the farm has organic growing practices in place. Um, we offer. Uh, from the beginning, uh, the opportunity for people in the community to join us, um, there was a component of holistic health and massage and alternative therapies, um, and the whole idea of, of working in harmony with the land itself rather than uh, against it. So uh, a, another beginning piece was a, a workshop, even before moving into the uh, place itself, uh, um, studying a permaculture design for the uh, whole operation. So, sisters and other folks, uh, families and individuals and volunteers have lived here over the years as the farm has uh, come to this present time, which is I think we're about almost 35 years uh, to to now. Uh, so mm-hmm. that's kind of the, the background. But a lot of what was begun in those early days really continues uh, in a more developed way, perhaps, but uh, it, it, it has stayed true to its mission.
1: I, I'm glad you brought that up, Sister Jane, because I was going to ask just that, you know, how um, has, if at all, how has uh, the mission and the work of Heartland Farm changed or evolved over the last 35 years? Um, and, you know, it sounds like the the, the core components, um, you know, of of holistic health and, and you know, uh, serving the community and healing remain, uh, you know, at the forefront of your work. Um, but how does that actually look in practice? How did it look in practice 35 years ago and how does it look in practice today?
4: Well, I think 35 years ago, the place was a, a, a novelty. <laughs> um, <laughs> I, I, I think it seemed like a brave effort and, and, uh, a little maybe fringy and alternative. Um, and yet, uh, I think the long run has proved that it is, it continues to be a a viable thing. Um, The organic growing uh, produced uh, enough to uh, develop a small CSA. Now we participate in the local farmer's market. Um, Mm -hmm. The offering of, of space continues on. Uh, we have a guest house and people join us for lots of different reasons to just get away for a weekend, um, gather from several points on the compass to, uh, connect with, uh, let's say siblings (laughs) in families. Um, uh, we also offer programs, formal programs where people sign up and learn about, uh, things like fiber and uh, uh, we have one coming right up on uh, composting that Tara could tell you more about. Uh, So we continue to offer uh, those alternative ways of, of being connected to the earth, connected to uh, uh, the more healing side of, of what, Agricultural and rural living is all about. So mm-hmm.
1: it's, it sounds it sounds like a, you know a beautiful way to um, you know make the most uh, out of um, you know a rural setting, as you've said. And and you know you also bring up I think a very good point about it being a novelty thirty five years ago. As we sit here today, you know things you know when we talk about. Um, you know, uh, community supported agriculture, you know, organic growing or any of these other things that they've become much, much more commonplace, certainly in the last, you know, five to 10 years, 35 years ago, um, you know, I, they certainly, you know, I'm sure we're were out of the mainstream and it's really an incredible testament to the work that you've done that you have, you know, we're really at the, at the, at the cutting edge, um, you know, and saw a, a, a potential, And also, you know, we're able to integrate that into, you know, service living within that community of, of, I believe, 15,000 people. What's the exact town there in Kansas?
4: That's a a moving target, but it it tends to decrease. Um, I I think the population of Great Bend, which is the uh, county seat of the adjoining Barton County, is... uh, I think 12, between 12 and 13,000 people. I see. Um, the county we are in, Rush County, which is just over the line from Barton, uh, has about 3,000 people in the entire county. So we're mm-hmm. quite rural. <laughs> right. This is Absolutely. Teresa.
5: I actually looked some of those numbers up. Good. Um, for a grant that we're applying for. And the three counties that are probably what you would call our service area the total population for those three counties is about 34,000.
1: Okay. Sure. I mean, still, you know, comparatively small for sure. And obviously, you know, rural and and probably more likely than not considered underserved by a number of different organizations and government entities that, you know, you might be applying to. So makes, makes a lot of sense. Um, before I go on, I want to shift over to Tara, Tara Crawford, the farm manager. Um, Tara, um, I'd like to get a sense of, um, the farm operation, you know, what do you, what do you grow? What do you raise? Um, you know, how many acres do you have? Uh, Give us, give us a snapshot of, um, a, a day there on Heartland Farm from your perspective.
6: Okay. Well, thank you for having us on, um, the day to day is a lot of gardening and a lot of animal cares. We have an eighty acre farm. Um, some of that is in hay and some of that is in um like walking trails uh for people to come mm-hmm. and visit and get a break from the hustle and bustle and come out and enjoy our walking trails and then the rest of the farm is split up into housing. We have um four different houses here on the farm as well as a small. Um, two small off one off-grid cabin and one small just like one bedroom studio um, cabin that we have residents guests or volunteers stay in those different spaces and then anyone who's here helps out with the day-to-day of the farm Um, a lot of those responsibilities are mine or Um, woofers when they are here helping us out. Explain what woofers
1: are for people that aren't aware.
6: Uh, Woof is Worldwide Opportunities on Organic Farms. And so it's a volunteer program. People sign up as either hosts or volunteers, and then they can apply to come and volunteer at a farm. The farms have to be focused on sustainable and organic growing methods And so it's an opportunity for people who've maybe never been on a farm to kind of come and experience what life is like. So there's a big focus not only on learning skills about farming and agriculture, but also on like learning what the lifestyle is like. And that's what I think Mm -hmm. a lot of woofers get out of coming here is they get to come and spend a week or a month or sometimes closer to a year living in community with us and learning about our lifestyle and the importance of farming and especially sustainable farming because sometimes a lot of people come where they grew up on like a bigger farm but they've never you know done some of the things we do by hand so we have those woofers come and work with us on a typical day we do all the animal chores we have 16 alpacas and about 75 chickens and so we take mm. care of them. Um, there's seasonal maintenance tasks, like shearing the fleece off of the alpacas. That happens once a year. And it's a big day where we have um, about 30 alpacas because the local community comes out and gets their alpacas sheared with us. And so we'll <laughs> do those sorts of things seasonally as well as day to day. We just take care of the gardens and the animals and uh, use mostly organic methods. We're a non-certified organic farm. Um and the production of our food. And we take that to a farmer's market. We can a lot of it. We make soaps and cloth goods, and we teach classes on all those skills
1: as well. Wow. You certainly do a lot. Um, uh, Tell me a little bit more about your sustainable and organic practices. Give me some examples of, um, you know, how you employ skills that, um, you know, would be um, described as sustainable or organic and, you know, whether it's, uh, you know, fertilizing or cover crops or whatever it might be.
6: Yeah. Um, so we try to use, uh, sustainable and organic practices in all of our growing methods in our gardens. Um, so that kind of from start to finish, some of the things you mentioned, um, we collect the, our alpacas make wonderful organic compost that we collect every day and (laughs) scoop up into a pile and let Uh, cook down over the winter, and we'll use that alpaca manure to fertilize our gardens. Um, We make sure that the gardens always have a nice barrier of mulch to help uh, with weed suppression. We use um, rainwater collection, as well as drip irrigation, which helps to conserve water. Um, We do some seed saving here, as well as we don't use much Mm. uh, heavy equipment for Planting or harvesting, we use mostly hand tools for that. Um, so a lot of wow. buckets and rakes and hand pulling of weeds, um, which helps to um, reduce our impact on the planet. But it also helps us. Part of the goal is so that we can. Um, part of the goal is so that we can show people that it can be done. That it's not that much work to hand weed your garden. That you don't need to till your garden in order to get a good and productive crop. Um, we also have a high tunnel that we got with the USDA grant. And so that mm-hmm. allows us some season extension in the spring and the fall. Um, so right. that's really nice for people to come and see, because that's not, people don't have a lot of covered growing spaces. So it's nice for people to be able to come out and experience that here at the farm. We still have, productive tomato plants out there even though a lot of the outdoor garden spaces have gotten hit by the first small frost and the tomatoes outside are looking really sad and the ones in the high tunnel are <laughs> beautiful and productive
1: still. That's great that you have those options um, and uh, I, I'm curious to know about you know you told me a little bit about the woofers but uh, you know what kind of folks? Um, what brings people out to the farm to learn, um, or to volunteer? Do you see that, you know, it's, uh, the connectivity to the food source? Is it climate change? What is, what is motivating people, do you think, to, to come and, um, experience Heartland Farm for themselves?
6: People come out for a lot of reasons. Um, because Heartland Farm is, um, rooted in spirituality, we'll get people who come to- get away and to kind of reconnect and to experience the culture of the sisters here out at the farm. We'll get people who are uh, interested in getting away from their desk job and getting outside and getting some sun. People who are curious about starting their own farm or getting their own animals. So they'll come to spend some time working in our garden to experience that and be able to take that home and maybe start their own. Um, We have people from all over we will have retired individuals, people with, with doctorates. We had a guy come who was religious studies at Yale. Um, he was here for like two weeks. We've had, you know, there's people from all backgrounds just interested in coming and experiencing some part of the community that we have here.
5: This is Teresa again. Like, um, yeah. I do think in our volunteer population, there are, um, a lot of people who are concerned about climate change and about the food chain and how can I grow my own food? How can I um, cut that necessary link uh, between what I eat and where it comes from so that they know where it comes from, they know how it's grown. And also, and I think the COVID-19 pandemic really hit at this, You know, if something happens, Can I support myself with what I grow? Mm -hmm. And I think that is an important aspect of many of our woofers that come to the
1: farm. That that makes absolute total sense, given kind of the the complexities and the dynamics that we see globally these days. Teresa, I want to stick with you. Teresa Johnson, the marketing director at Heartland Farm. Um, I can imagine that you're uh, involved with community outreach for, for the farm, um, how do you um, get the local community engaged in the work that you do?
5: We just had one of our major fundraising events for the year. Um, we are a nonprofit, so fundraising is really essential for us. Um, every year in September, kind of towards the end of the growing season, we do have our annual farm to table fundraising dinner. Mm-hmm. And that brings, I think, some people out here that wouldn't come out here for other reasons. And they get to experience that. They get to experience the difference in in the food that we grow. And we partner with um, other area farms who are also either organic or they raise grass-fed beef or uh, whatever they may raise that kind of goes along with our mission. And so they get to see and taste that difference in how locally grown and Organically maintained, um, whether it's gardens or it's it's livestock, how there is a real difference in in what you eat and what the taste is between, you know, a tomato that you get at the grocery store that has come from California and traveled on a truck versus when right. that is grown locally, that may not have necessarily the same length of of staying fresh, but it's because it's not filled with all those things that make a tomato last for a, you know, a four day truck drive to central Kansas. So I think they begin to experience it that way. Um, We are kind of out in the middle of nowhere. We are um, about 12 miles from Great Bend, Kansas, which we've talked about, which is our major population center in in this area. And so we're starting to get the word out and people are starting to come out that have never come out before. And that's nice to kind of get just on their radar, but it also gives us the opportunity to touch base with those people and to start teaching them about our mission, whether that's a mission of healthy food, whether it's a mission of um, retreat into nature, uh, whatever they're, they may be interested in, just getting that word out that we can provide that for them has been really helpful to us and to them, hopefully.
1: Uh, sure. I, I can imagine. Now, what about, uh, you know, connecting with uh, local ag educators, the greater, you know, agricultural community at large there within central Kansas? Uh, do you do anything to, you know, include them in the conversations that you're having internally as an organization?
5: A couple of things um, we do have and have had um, fairly major um Connections with the, the ag industry and with ag education in our area. Um, we've had a, a uh, what does Veronica do now? She's the conservation district. Mm-hmm. Um, she, she used to be on our advisory council. And we currently have uh, Vic Martin, who is the ag director at Barton County Community College, who is on our, our, our advisory council. And that's really nice because I think in this area, you can't really shove new growing practices down people's throats. You know, mm-hmm. these are folks that are trying to make a living and don't have the money or the time to just switch up what they're doing. But it's, it's showing that to younger people who are just starting out. Another thing that we're really excited about, and this is the second year we've participated in it. Um, Barton County, which is you know a mile from from us in Rush County, every year they have a kids Ag Day, which brings every fourth grader in the county to a local farm, and um, three presenters give you know six or seven presentations to all of these fourth graders. And this was the second year that we've been invited to do that. Now that's a pretty oh, that's major great. switch. Um, you know, sh- talking to kids about Um, alternative livestock, and talking about the growing circle, we take uh, three of our alpacas so that they can know what they are. And we talk about how we use them, not just for their fiber, but also for their manure to to use as our organic fertilizer. So we are making some inroads. And I think that that will continue to, to blossom in this area. I think farmers know what's going on as far as the climate it's just a matter of them not being able to, at this time, switch those methods from a financial sure. perspective. So, if we can get kids who are in fourth grade or college age students who are just now starting out, I think that will continue to flourish.
1: Well, it sounds like you're, you know, trying to invest in the future, uh, and you know whether it's with doing outreach and education with. Um, elementary school kids, or with the uh, uh, the local community, and certainly with the volunteers that come from sounds like far and wide uh, to Central Kansas to experience what you have there. Uh, you know, you are providing a, a great amount of education on uh, you know sustainable agriculture um, and you know health and wellness in general. Absolutely. Um, so I I, I want to give everybody an opportunity maybe to to just weigh in on, you know, what you see for you know what you hope for the future of of uh, Heartland Farms as you know it's it's been thirty five years and it sounds like you again continue to build for the future. Um, I'll, I'll start with Sister Jane. Uh, ho- what do you hope to see for the next you know decade and beyond with Heartland Farms?
4: Yeah, um, I I think that's kind of the position we are in now as a as a uh, ministry um, as the sisters age out <laughs> uh, as we're all doing that. Um, I, I I think the the mission of Heartland Farm is incredibly relevant as we go forward. Um, resilience is my favorite. New word, uh, it's not new, but it it is one that I think uh, comes to the fore in what we're looking into the future uh, as as a, uh, as a global family. So uh, the efforts that we are establishing, um, I I see us needing to just strengthen them um, and maybe mm-hmm. look for more partners, more, uh, opportunities, uh, uh, maybe, uh, we won't shift our focus significantly, but we might shift our collaborators, uh, a little more consciously. I, I think the beginnings, everybody's kind of out there doing their own thing. And, and now I think the collaborative, collaborative model is, much more important uh and mm-hmm. um so i see that uh, as a uh it, what we're doing right now we're laying the foundations for um working with the the health community for example in a in collaboration mm-hmm. working with um the educators working with um uh, even uh the uh more civic and um like the optimist club and and people like that who are aren't just a source of volunteers but are are people who are included in the mission so i, I think that's what i see as uh, a, just a broadening of our of our availability and and yet also trying to figure out how to have the capacity for it too <clears throat> mm-hmm
1: that's uh, I I think you've you've laid that out very very well. Um, what about um, what about you, Tara? What do you see from your perspective?
2: Well,
6: um, I agree with Jane. One of the things that I was thinking was that it would be wonderful to see the local community um, come together. We have volunteers from far and wide. We get a lot of woofers from all over. We don't have very many. We have some, but we don't have a lot of local volunteers who come out. And I would love to see that uh, increase, that we would have, you know, more people from the local community taking um, kind of ownership of the farm. Uh, We have our advisory council, and I'd love to see more locals coming out and consistently uh, volunteering on the farm and kind of taking some ownership over uh, helping out with the gardening and uh, having their own passion projects that they could help us to plan and implement here at the farm. Um, I also hope that as the world is changing, that we are adapting to uh, continue to fill the needs that have always been there, but also to fill the needs that we are just learning about um, and adapting our growing practices to the changing climate and to the changing uh, factors that farmers are facing here in our local
1: community as well. Small goals, <laughs> small goals, that, but uh, I think all very doable. And it seems like, again, the, the impact of Heartland Farms seems boundless. Teresa, um, what about you? Where where do you see Heartland Farms going and what are your hopes for it in the future?
5: I really hope that people decide and choose to, as Tara said, take a stake in the farm Um We have so many programs available out here that really are holistic in nature. Um, We do everything from how to learn how to spin your own yarn to Mm -hmm. Tara, as as Sister Jane mentioned, is having a organic compost tea workshop this weekend. So again, (laughs) focusing on how people can grow their own organically based garden Um, showing them that they do have the skill to do this and that we can help them learn how to grow their own food or to make their own, maybe not clothes, but accessories, their own hats and their own gloves and, and so on. And just to have people experience, continue to experience and encourage people to come out here and experience what I consider an overwhelming sense of peace And there's so little of that um, in modern society. And you just Mm -hmm. come out here and it's just like a breath of fresh air. And you can learn the skills to help you to become more um, self-reliant and to know how to access healthy food. Um, We are in pretty much a food desert in central Kansas. You know, access Mm -hmm. to grocery stores is not great. Some people have to drive 20 or 30 miles to, to access food. And so yeah. those people, I think, would really benefit from learning how to be more self-reliant, how to be self-sufficient, and to learn the skills that they, they need to be able to do that.
1: No question about that and and I'm glad that you brought up the issue of food deserts because it is something that we touch upon here on the show and that I think oftentimes is overlooked in rural communities. I think there's maybe this assumption that you grow food, you know, and <laughs> therefore um it's abundant yes. um and And I know for my my communities here in in uh, Ohio in northeastern Ohio where you know we do have large pockets of of rural areas where same sort of thing you have to drive 25 miles one way to to get to any kind of grocery store even even ones that are you know small and and not particularly well stocked with you know any so- sense of variety so sure. you know i think that you have that that pulse of what the needs of the community are, and you know, I, I certainly, I have to say, you know, I've been inspired by our conversation, and you know, maybe I'll make it out to Central Kansas one of these days. I feel like I say that to every one of every one of my guests, <laughs> but I mean it. You. I mean it sincerely every single time. <laughs> I've met so many incredible people doing this doing this program, um, and uh, we're just so glad that we've had an opportunity to share your stories with our audience and educate folks a little bit on Heartland Farm. Um, Teresa, if people want to learn more about Heartland Farm, your mission, and how to volunteer, where do we find you?
5: Um, you can find us on our website, which is Heartland Farm-K S at O P That's O-P-P-E-A-C-E dot O-R-G. Or you can find us on Facebook. Um, Our tag is Heartland Farm KS. We're also on um, Instagram and you can find all of our contact information on those three places.
1: You can find, find you everywhere. Heartland Farm. We are so happy to have you, Sister Jane, Tara, Teresa. Thank you for taking the time out of your busy day, serving the community there in central Kansas and educating the community at large about the incredible ways um, to engage in nature and uh, build the practices of, of sustainable and organic agriculture. Thanks for being on the program.
4: Thank you. Thank you.
1: You've been listening to Eat Your Heartland Out. This episode was produced by me, Capri Kafaro. Our audio engineers are Liam Warner and Armin Spengen. Theme music by Jason Shaw. You can learn more about the show by visiting heritageradionetwork.org backslash eat your heartland out. Eat your heartland out is powered by Simplecast. Thanks for listening to Heritage Radio Network, food radio supported by you. Keep in touch at heritageradionetwork.org slash subscribe.